Okay, well, this morning we are, uh, we're going to start with a quick Bible quiz. Isn't that your worst nightmare coming to church? <laughs> Just your worst nightmare that the pastor is going to do a Bible quiz. I don't ever do this. It's such a churchy thing to do. Um, but I'm going to do it anyway. But I promise I won't call on you. That's my promise to you. Okay? I promise I will not call on you. Stop and think for a moment. Other than the passage that was just read for you, how many of you, and if you don't, if you can't, don't feel badly about this, but how many of you can think of a verse from the book of Jeremiah? Raise your hand. Keep your hands raised. Keep your hands raised. I'm not going to call on you. Okay. Now put, keep your hands raised. Now put your hand down if it's a verse other than Jeremiah 29.11. Okay. Perfect. That's exactly how I was hoping that would go. There were, to be fair, there are a couple of people who still had their hands raised, which is real impressive. Real, real impressive. I love that verse from Jeremiah 29.11. When I went to Chick, which is our, our high school conference that happens every three years, Chick was in Colorado, uh, and when I was in high school, that was our verse, Jeremiah 29.11, which says what? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. This is a total nightmare for people who don't know scripture. Sorry. <laughs> it's, it's okay. We're going to do this together. It's just fine. Um, if you've been around the church for a long time, we love to put that verse everywhere. We love to put that verse on graduation cards. We love to put that verse on sympathy cards. Uh, when people are struggling, that's a verse that we really, really love to use. But as you can just see, or as you just saw, by and large, <clears throat> even for those who have been around church for a while, we don't really know anything else from the book of Jeremiah, do we? We just mostly know that one verse. And why is that? Well, if you have ever tried to actually read the book of Jeremiah, and you felt like it was incredibly confusing and difficult to understand, you're not only in good company, you're just plain right. There's an author who wrote a commentary on the book of Jeremiah, and this is what he said about it. No clear principle seems to have determined its arrangement so that anyone who reads the book straight through finds himself in a state of constant bewilderment. That's what the commentary author for the book of Jeremiah had to say about it. Here's how it goes. You start to read the book of Jeremiah, you get a few chapters in, and you're like, I got this. I've got the hang of this book. And then suddenly you find yourself in this text, and you realize that we're like somewhere in the middle of Jeremiah's life, and you have no context whatsoever for who he is, or how he got there, or what's happening. And then partway through, we get to this point where we read about King Zedekiah, and Jeremiah is an old man. So you're like, okay, I get this. But then four chapters later, the text without any explanation, jumps back 16 years, and suddenly somebody named Jehoiakim is king, and we're left completely confused. We have no idea what's going on. There was no warning that the text just went backwards 16 years. It's super confusing. In case you don't believe me that Jeremiah is confusing, take a look at this graphic. Okay, so the bottom line are the chapters of Jeremiah, and the top line are the years when those events happened. So good luck with Jeremiah. That's how confusing, that's how confusing Jeremiah is. It's, it's, a difficult, uh, it's a difficult book to read. And this doesn't even touch on the fact that, like I said, things go backward without you knowing it. And it also doesn't touch on the fact that in this one book, 
there are all kinds of different literary styles. It's a super confusing book to read. It is hard to understand. And I know that that just kind of feeds into the issue that so many of us have uh, about reading the Old Testament, that it feels so confusing. And the same is true somewhat of our passage for this morning that Terry read for us. It comes from this confusing book, but obviously it must fit our series somehow or we wouldn't be talking about it, right? The truth is that Jeremiah 31, the passage that Terry just read for us, is actually one of the most significant texts in the Old Testament, and it has everything to do with our sermon series. So while it's a little heady, I'm going to ask you to stay with me, okay? We can do this together. If you're new here this morning or you haven't been here for the past few weeks, we are in the middle of uh, week four of our series, Redeemed. It is a little bit of an unusual Lenten journey, but there is a method to our madness here. I've said this each week of the series now, that, that while Easter is this feels like this amazing, awesome, standalone celebration, Easter was never meant to be celebrated as a standalone day. If we really want to celebrate the redemption that took place on Easter Sunday, we have to understand that redemption has been a part of God's very nature since the very beginning. And so that is where we started with this series at the very beginning. We talked about the story of creation, and more specifically, we talked about the story of what happened when Adam and Eve, who were in the garden, chose something other than God, chose something over God. It was the first time that we saw sin enter the world. So that sin caused a separation between God and humanity because a holy God cannot be in the presence of sin. So while God created us to walk in perfect relationship with him, where he provided everything that we needed, where we would be perfectly dependent on him, this one sinful act completely cut humanity off from God's presence. But God is a God of redemption and a God of grace. And so God begins to show us grace, at least to some people initially. Not everyone would feel cut off from God, for God would begin the work of creating covenants for his people. These are the covenants that we've been talking about through this series. So not all of the benefits of God's covenant of grace would come at one time, which is why we're looking at all of these different ones, because his grace would be slowly but progressively revealed throughout the five covenants of the Old Testament. And so three weeks ago, we talked about God's very first covenant with humanity, which happened through Noah after God flooded the earth. Never again was God's promise. Never again would he flood the earth, would he destroy every living thing as he had done. <coughs> Excuse me. It was the beginning of God making a people for himself. And then two weeks ago, we talked about God's covenant with Abraham, which was renewed through the birth of Abraham and Sarah's son, Isaac. So God told Abraham that he would make, that he would be the father of many nations. He told him to go outside and look up, and as many stars as he could see in the sky, that's as many descendants as Abraham would have. And he also promised Abraham's ancestors land of their own, which was a very big deal then. <coughs> so that was covenant number two. Covenant number three came about 450 years after that, where Israel finds themselves enslaved in Egypt. 
suffering under the oppressive hand of Pharaoh. And God uses Moses to lead his people away from that bondage and into freedom. You remember some of these stories. They cross the Red Sea on dry ground. They literally receive food from the sky and water from a rock. And so they eventually get to a place called Mount Sinai, where God makes a covenant, covenant number three, with Moses. This covenant served as a reminder that God would be faithful to the promises that he has already made. A good chunk of the book of Exodus is actually about this covenant. That's covenant three. Are you tracking with me still? Okay. Part of what we learn through these texts is that when God makes a promise, we had better pay attention. And that is what we have been doing during this Lenten series. Then last week, while we didn't talk about the fourth covenant specifically, Pastor Megan Gillen was here and she talked about a story that took place right around the time that the fourth covenant was made under the leadership of King David. And she spoke about the rape of Tamar. I know that was a really heavy text for many of you, and so we'll continue to create space for us to keep talking about that. But for us to keep going for this morning, another 300 or so years after the covenant that was made with Moses, God makes this covenant with David. We find that covenant in the book of 2 Samuel. It's really long, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there are a couple of pieces that I think are really important because we're not spending time on that covenant. There's a couple pieces that you need to hear about that covenant. This is what the Lord says in 2 Samuel. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Pay attention to this. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. This is to King David, remember. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his king forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from you before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Does that sound familiar at all? The one who is to come, whose house and kingdom will endure forever, whose throne will be established forever. Does that sound familiar to anybody? This is why I want us to stay connected to the Old Testament. I was, tell, I was talking to the worship team about this this morning. Jesus did not just come out of thin air one day. God didn't just wake up one day and say, I think I'm going to put on human skin and check it out. It didn't happen that way. Jesus was a part of the unfolding story of God and of God's promise to God's people since the very beginning of time. If you were here a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Abraham, I jumped all the way to the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, which is the very beginning of the New Testament, right? And that first chapter is filled with the boring part that we always skip over, which is Jesus' genealogy. And I brought us to that because I wanted to point out that the first person listed in Jesus' genealogy was Abraham, whom he made the first covenant with. Pretty cool. Well, guess who else is on that list? Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. 
and then go down a few generations beyond that. And it says that Salmon is the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, we're almost there. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. This is Jesus' genealogy. And so God is not only establishing these covenants with his people, he is establishing the very bloodline of Christ. It's amazing. These stories are amazing. These people matter. So often, so often we say that we can't see God's plan, and so often we can't. But here, we can. Through the Old Testament, we can. And, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, (coughs) God is telling us who he is. Someone described, I love this, someone described God's covenants as his self-written job description. As God's self-written job description. I want you to be excited about the Old Testament because it is where we learn who God is. His self-written job description. This is where we learn that God is all-knowing. It's where we learn that God is all-powerful. It is where we learn that God is sovereign and that he is merciful. And it is where we learn that God uses those attributes for the good of his people. It's where we first learn that God is for us. It's where God reveals to us that he will redeem lost and broken people and situations for his good and for our good. That God's desire is to keep our hearts from turning to things that lead us to death. We look at the Old Testament and we think of God's wrath, but here is the unfolding story of God's love. God wants to keep us from things that will destroy us, from things that will destroy our lives and our families and our bodies and integrity. So when God makes these covenants, he's offering his job description to them, and then he signs it. It's as if he is saying this, this covenant, this is how I will work for you with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my strength, This is how I will love you. This is how I will keep your best interest in mind. This is how I will help you to know that I am your God and you are my people. These covenants are not just some boring history lesson. They are God showing us who he is, how much he loves us, and what he would do to redeem us. And so there's this one more covenant to go before Jesus enters the scene which we'll talk about on Palm Sunday next week. And this last covenant happens to fall in this confusing book of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah came onto the scene a little over 600 years before Jesus came onto the scene. There's also, just so you are aware, a 400-year gap of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So there's only about 200 years or so left after what we see in Jeremiah and when Jesus comes onto the scene. Make sense? But this covenant, this last covenant, is different than all of the other covenants, and its setting is even more difficult still. Jeremiah is referred to as the suffering prophet, or the weeping prophet, because his ministry was so incredibly difficult. 
For what it's worth, God did tell Jeremiah that his ministry would be difficult, but I highly doubt that that lessens the pain or the struggle of it. And so Jeremiah kept sharing his words of prophecy to the people of Judah, but like all of us, they didn't want to hear it. And so they didn't listen to what he had to say. And because they didn't listen to what Jeremiah had to say, things just kept getting worse and worse for them. And so Jeremiah kept condemning Judah for their sin. And then he eventually had to announce the imminent destruction of their nation. And he was right. Because they chose things other than God, Judah would eventually end up in exile in Babylon in 587 B.C. I know, super cheery stuff for a Sunday morning. (coughs) But that's one of the reasons why this covenant in Jeremiah 31 is so important. Because this nation, this nation, this nation, is in the midst of the darkest valley of despair and destruction and judgment. When suddenly Jeremiah comes to them with words of comfort and restoration and hope. This covenant really extends beyond just the passage that Terry read for us. It it really goes the full length of uh, Jeremiah 30 through 33. And Jeremiah tells them that after their exile is over, that God is going to bring them back to the land of Judah, and he's going to restore them as a new and faithful people. God will do a new thing here, because that is what God loves to do. And here's where this takes a turn. Because God's promise that this new covenant that he is making here, he promises that this new covenant will not be like any of the covenants he has made before. (coughs) Excuse me. So there's just a couple components I want to touch on. One piece of this covenant has to do with the human heart. And so there's a scholar named Dennis Olson who said that the new covenant involves a surgical procedure, a rewriting of the human heart. So under the Old Covenant, the Ten Commandments were written on the tablets of stone and posted for everybody to see. But the trouble with external guidelines like that is that we have a heart's desire to resist them as outside interference and imposition on the way that we want to do things. (coughs) We have a natural bend towards things that aren't good for us. And so when we feel trapped by rules, many of our tendencies are to resist. Jeremiah says that our old hearts are deeply engraved with this inclination towards destruction, that our hearts are rebellious toward God and the ways of God. So what Jeremiah is saying here is that God is promising to replace this deeply engraved sinful heart with a new heart that is engraved with God's law written in God's own handwriting. The idea after the covenant is that people will not obey God because they are supposed to obey him, but because they naturally want to obey him. It's a different kind of relationship than just God the rule maker and we the rule followers. God is remaking a people for himself, and it's a people who will want to follow God, not because he is a lawmaker, but because they have experienced the love of God and they know that he is for them and they know that his ways are better than their own. And here's where this starts to get good because this covenant in Jeremiah is not just for the people of Judah, as Sophie talked about. This is the first time that the covenant extends beyond 
a person, or just a group of people, because soon the covenant is going to be for all people. This covenant, here's a couple of church words for you. This covenant is Christological and eschatological. So if you need some trivia words today, I'm sure that will come up in your lunch. I'm sure you can fit eschatological in your lunch this morning. This covenant is Christological, which means it talks about Christ. Pretty simple. And eschatological, which means it talks about the end times. Okay, so those are your, those are your words for today. While this covenant is good news, it's great news, really, for the people of Judah, it is so much more than that because it points to the coming of Christ. And it points as well to the coming of Christ at the end of time when God will make everything new again. We're going to be singing a song in a few minutes during communion, and the line is, while we are waiting, come. It's a super goofy line if you're not familiar with the story of God. While we are waiting, come. It is this reality that as followers of Jesus, we recognize that Jesus is here with us and yet still to come. The same was true for the people of Judah at this time. God was with them, but they were still waiting for the promised Messiah. God is telling them that he plans to completely transform the future. And it's threefold. Judah will come out of exile and God will restore them. For God tells them, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That's the heart of God. So that's one piece of the covenant. Then there is the one who will come who will be God's son and God will be his father, which points to the first coming of Christ in the world. And then finally, this new covenant that he speaks about here. This passage is the only time in the entire Old Testament where the phrase new covenant is used. And it speaks of the day that is still to come even for us. The new covenant is the one that we as followers of Jesus in 2019 are still waiting for. It's the final promise when everything will be restored, when God will make all things new again. It's the only time that that phrase appears in the Old Testament, but it does appear in the New Testament. Do you want to know who says it? Jesus. When Jesus is gathered with his disciples in the upper room just before his death, he takes the cup and he gives thanks. Gives thanks. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Same phrase, same meaning, same covenant. Isn't that awesome? I know I get real nerdy about this stuff. I get real excited about it. I hope you do too. The new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied about would come through the blood of Christ. I know it's a ton of churchy language, but I hope that we can help make some sense of this. Because while I happen to think that studying the Old Testament just for the sake of studying the Old Testament is enough on its own, I also want us to realize that these covenants helped pave the way for our understanding of Jesus in the world. We would not understand our need for Jesus if we didn't see God's unfolding character through these covenants. And I also want us to see that this last covenant in Jeremiah is the voice of one of our spiritual ancestors who is talking to his own peers about how God has shown up 
in his life, how God is showing up in their lives. It's the same reason that we today talk about the importance of sharing our stories with our peers and with future generations. What we are doing is talking to other people about how God has shown up in our own lives. Our stories with God serve as signs to other people of God at work in the world and of God's redemption within us. It's this tension that we live in as believers that we are here to acknowledge what God has already done even as we remind each other of what God has yet to do. In my opinion, it's the only way that we can stand in the utter chaos and disaster that this life often feels like. And while we may not have answers for why things have unfolded the way that they have, we have seen God's work of redemption within ourselves. And we believe in the day that God will make all things right again. I know it's easy for us to focus on all of the hurt or all of the things that have gone wrong or could go wrong or will go wrong, but I want to ask you this morning, where have you seen God's work of redemption in your own life? How have you felt, how have you felt that God is for you? Where have you seen God take something awful and bring something good or beautiful from it. Do you believe this morning that God is for you? And are you willing to admit that on our own, our hearts are rebellious to the things that are actually best for us, and that God's desire is that we would choose the things that bring us life and not death? This is not about religion. And it's not about rules. It's about relationship. Our relationship with a loving God who wants what is best for us and who is willing to sacrifice everything that we would experience redemption. A relationship with a God who wants to redeem every last thing within us that is broken and hurting even today. This life is short. God laid down his life for us. Maybe it's time that we stop fighting, that we lay down our rebellious hearts and accept that God is for us and that he wants to redeem us. It is that same story and it is that same love that draws us to the table this morning. And I love that we get to celebrate. I, you know I love communion anyway. But I love that we get to celebrate communion together on the heels of this story. This is the connection, the Old Testament to the New Testament, that Jeremiah makes this promise that one day, one day Christ will come and he will bring redemption. And then we fast forward to the end of Jesus' life when he's gathered in the upper room with his disciples. And he takes the bread and he breaks it and he takes the cup, and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And he says to them, every time you eat the bread, every time you drink the cup, what are you doing? You're proclaiming the Lord's death until 
he comes again, the new covenant. We are a part of the unfolding story of God, and these are God's gifts to us. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks for the privilege of getting to gather at your table for the reminder this morning, God, that what we do, we don't do in a bubble. That we are a part of your unfolding story, your story that has been unfolding for thousands and thousands of years as you have created a people for yourself. A people who would love you, Lord, not out of obligation, not because of religion, not because of rules, but because you are good and you want what's best for us. God, I know that my heart is rebellious. I know that when someone tells me that this is what I should do, I want to do the opposite. And so, God, I pray for anybody in this room who is like that, that you would remind us this morning that redemption comes from you alone. We can't make it happen, Lord. And so for those this morning who are experiencing brokenness or hurt, a place in their life where they need things to be redeemed and restored, Lord, would you speak your words of truth and your words of love to us this morning? As we gather at your table, as we lift this cup, as we break this bread, God, help us to be grateful that we are a part of this new covenant. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.